there is no secret formula for scaling customer support and boosting customer satisfaction. But there is the all-new HubSpot Service Hub, bringing service and support together in one platform so you can deliver the best experiences possible and free up a rep's time with AI-powered help desk, all so you can keep customers happy. Secrets out. Service Hub is a game changer. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. Hey, welcome to another episode of Marketing Against the Grain, your podcast to help you figure out how to learn better today as well as tomorrow and grow your business. I'm your co-host, Kit Bodner, and Kieran is with us today. Kieran, I did something yesterday that I think you're really going to be interested in. Let's hear it. So I did a cold therapy class. Oh, wow. And so it was basically like an hour where you started off with breathing exercises. We did about... 15 minutes of that. And one of the things you do is you you breathe in, you breathe out, you hold your nose and you walk. Yep. That's one of the common Wim Hof methods. So did that. Turns out that's really hard. Yeah. But then the teacher had giant wine barrels. He had 150 gallon wine barrels that he filled with ice. And he had these steps fabricated so you could climb into this wine barrel and he had a stool in it. And so after you do your breathing, you climb up and you just get straight on into the ice bath. Straight in. Straight in, full ice up to your neck. Do you want to guess my time? How long did I make it? When I was over in Boston, we were at our offsite telling me that they did this and they did 45 seconds. And so I suspect you were in and around the same range. Four and a half minutes. What? Four and a half minutes? Yeah. Are you some sort of like Eskimo? (laughs) Four and a half minutes, baby. That speaks to just your determination to win something. Of course it does. Did anyone else stay in longer? No. And did you want to get out the entire time or at some point did you just relax into it? Look, the first 30 seconds are completely miserable and then you relax into it and you just kind of acclimatize to it. And then every 45 seconds or so, you kind of get a jolt and want to get out and you just have to kind of manage through that. Yeah. The thing that I want to get is one of those barrels where they take old school looking beer kegs. Oh, yeah. yeah. And they use them as plunge pools. Sounds like that's what they had. Yes. It was amazing. I felt great afterwards. I feel amazing and recovered today after doing all of those healthy things, not just the ice, but the breathing and the stretching and the rolling was pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. Kieran, we've got a fun show today. We are going to have a hot take battle. That's what we've decided that (laughs) what the world needed a little bit today is more hot takes. And Kieran, I would like to give you the honor, the esteemed pleasure of going first. Okay. Let me do, which one should I do? I've got two really good ones. So you're telling me your takes are so hot. You don't even know which one to start with. I don't even know which one to start with. You know what? I'm going to start with a hot take that I think you'll have strong opinions on. Every marketing team structure is broken. Inclusive of HubSpot's. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, bro. But tell me why. (laughs) You're not wrong, but tell me why. Okay. Let me go into my three mental models and frameworks for why this may be. This is for scaling marketing teams. But even if you have a small marketing team, there is something to learn in this hot take. I think one of the things, one of the frameworks I love is one of the ones I use to describe to founders and marketing leaders on how to build a marketing team, which is you have builders, creators, or operators. Builders love to build digital channels, love to build audience. Creators love to tell your story at the different altitudes that you need to tell that story, whether that's brand, product. And then operators are incredibly good at strategy, alignment of people and processes and systems. And you really need all three as your marketing team scales 
my hot take is that when you're a team of one to 20, maybe even one to 30, team structures has indirect impact on your growth, but is not a core growth lever. As in, you can get away with an inefficient team structure and still actually be a really good marketing team in terms of execution because the team is small enough. When you get to a certain size because of cross-team collaboration and because of decentralization of decisions, so decisions go from you who manage most of the marketing team <laughs> to your direct reports, to your team's reports, yep. and then within the teams, yep. that causes chaos. And so coming back to builders, creators, operators, every builder or creator at some point has to become an operator because when you manage a large team, you actually have to become really good at operations. What meetings should I have? The structure of those meetings, how data flows across my teams, how I structure decks, all of these different things, like how the team works, and then alignment of all of the processes to help teams meet their goals. But that should always be secondary to the builders and creator skill within you. You want your best builders building, you want your best creators creating. Yes. I would say that in my experience, when I talk to a lot of marketing teams, everyone is forced to become primarily an operator at a certain size. And their building and creating skills become secondary to their need to become a really great operator. And I think that is wrong. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's fundamentally wrong. Why does that happen? When you have a team of 15 people, 20 people reporting into you, now you have to figure out how to structure that team. Now you have to figure out what the meetings are like. Now you have to figure out how data is reported to me. Now I have to figure out all of the ways that I align those people around these goals. And my recommendation is every builder or creator should have access to an operator. That should be a centralized function within marketing. And they should do it for everyone. Mm, okay. Tell everybody listening, how does it actually work in practice though? You have a central, not a marketing ops team, right? Marketing ops teams are actually for your systems. Build all of the systems that make your marketing, your marketing stack, your go-to-market tech stack work. An operations team that make the team work, right? You have a central operations and strategy team that create alignment across meetings, the same meeting structure, the same decks. They coordinate to make sure that people contribute to the decks. They own all of those decks. They own all of the meetings. They own how things are reported. So they own where the data and information flows to, like flows to you, flows across the team. Where do you go to get this? They own strategic projects. Okay, I really want to make sure that this thing succeeds in the next quarter. I have to make sure that all of these teams are aligned around it. But I would be better spent as a great builder or a creator trying to figure out how to solve complex problems, not how to figure out how to do all of this kind of alignment, make sure the teams do what they do need to do to hit those goals. So that team should be accountable to that, right? Mm -hmm. So there should be a central team and it needs only needs to be really small where you have operators dotted line into these kind of builder and creators teams and takes all of the operation overhead off people. You've done that some with your team, right? And it works really well. So I've done this and I will tell you, let's imagine that HubSpot did not exist and I had to go pick a new company to work with. And I think about what are the things that I could not live without? This would be one of the things I just could never go back. I could never go back to not having this function live within my team. Yes. Because it is something that I do not want to have to spend all of my time doing, nor am I the best person to do it. And I think that a lot of builders and creators that I speak with feel the same way. The reason they get bummed out on their role is because they have to spend all of their time doing this operator's work. Yeah. Uh, look, it's funny. This is a hot take battle, but I don't think that take is actually that hot. You're right in that any scaling growing team needs to figure out the balance between building and operating. And when you have anybody basically doing both of those things, they're at least, they're going to be suboptimal at one of them. Yep. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. 
Because sometimes you have to ask operators to build, you know what I mean? And then that's not what that's not their thing. And so you have other problems with that, right? And so I think it's hard in practice because it feels like overhead in the short term. Imagine if somebody's listening to this with a five-person marketing team, a 10-person marketing team, they're like, am I really going to have 10% of my team just doing operations work, I think that's a hard sell for some people. No, you again, you can really have an inefficient team structure to about 20 to 30 marketers and still have really high quality execution. I think team structure becomes much more important as you're scaling. One of the other things that someone can use that mental model for is if you actually take a job description, because I did this recently for one of my team, and I looked at job description, I said, okay, well, you're asking someone to be builder, like these three bullet points are builder. Now you're asking them to be world-class at operator. And now you're asking them to be creator. Mm-hmm. Everyone has one primary thing they're good at and a secondary thing that they have to do. And so like a great builder has to be an operator if they have a large team. A great operator may have to be a great builder to help their team do things or a great creator to help their team do things. But you need to figure out what is the primary thing you want that person to excel at and what is the secondary thing you don't mind if you coach them on or they can learn. And that to me is a good way to even think about the way you're trying to hire. Does this person need to be a builder and I don't need them to be a world-class at operations? Does this person need to be an Mm -hmm. operator and I don't need them to be a world-class at building or creating because they have people on their team who are really good at that? Completely, completely agree. It's I actually think it's something that people probably just don't think about. And so the hotter the take is when there's a strong perceived way of doing something in the world and you're going against it. And there's a way of doing something in high instruction marketing teams, but I just don't think people think about that and obsess about that as much right. as other things. So that's, I actually thought that was pretty, not just a good take, but also a hot take. What are you going to do for take number two? All right. You can break all of marketing into direct monetization. Our actions can be directly attributed to revenue mm-hmm. and indirect actions. Mm-hmm. All of the things that we do that indirectly tied to revenue. I would love to hear your hot take on why it is worth or not worth spending time on indirect activities. Doing things you can't directly measure in your marketing. Yes. Ah, this is great. Here's the deal. If you are a marketer, your marketing leader, your CEO, your CFO is going to push you to do all the directly measured stuff and to have like super clear ROI and attribution. You know what? That's pretty good. Like there, there are lots of smart things. But one of the running themes of our show that I think we believe, Karen, not just me, you and I believe in is differentiation, is standing out and being different to build a remarkable business. The challenge with that is once everybody just does all the measurable stuff, then you can't stand out or be differentiated because one, the competition's doing it. Two, you let the metrics dictate the strategy more so than what the customer needs. You start obsessing about just small tweaks to your system. So why is doing marketing that is only directly measurable a bad idea? Because it forces you to be really incremental. It allows you to not differentiate against your competition. And those two things are bad for long-term growth. Good in the short term, bad in the long term. You can do the directly measured stuff for a couple of years, but if you're building and trying to build a durable business, you're out. None of those things that are directly measurable have emotion. They don't have influence. They don't change how people feel. And you have to do the non-directly attributable aspects of marketing to get people to feel and believe. Look, I am a recovering, only do the (laughs) what you can measure marketer. 
I was that person for a long time. I don't want to go back to that dark place ever again. It was a dark time of my life. And I have seen the proverbial light and understand how valuable it is to actually have a balanced strategy. You want to do, you got to do both. But wow, if you are too rational and only do what you can measure, then you are letting instrumentation wag the tail of your strategy versus what the customer actually needs. The other thing is all the stuff you can directly measurable is getting harder to measure. Mm, Way harder. So you're going to obsess about measuring these things. Cool. But like with all data privacy and all the changes in the world, all those things are getting much, much harder to measure. So you're actually going to be in this bad spot where you're focusing on only stuff that you can measure, but your measurements are only going to be directional, not absolute. And that's like the worst possible spot to be in. So that's why that's a case for actually doing more and more less attributable marketing strategies because the attributable ones are getting much harder to figure out and attribute. Two quick things. Chrome is actually removing cookies 2023. Yes, they are. We are entering a very different world within the future. Here's a good one for you. I'll ask this on behalf of the listeners. I'm a marketing leader and I'm sitting there and I'm like, wow, Kip is making a lot of sense. How do I tell? How do I tell the my? Ones. How do I tell my CEO, my CFO? I want to like pivot and start to do some of this unmeasurable things that are really important. Do you think you would have had the ability to do that in HubSpot if you hadn't built HubSpot's demand engine and it's widely successful and people can see internally help to grow the business? You have a lot of leeway Mm -hmm. to do things like that. Like you can actually say, I think this is the right thing to do. And people are going to respect you and believe you because they have seen the results that you have driven. If you're in your first six to 12 months Mm -hmm. in a new company and you're a leader in the marketing team, how do you make that case when you maybe haven't earned your stripes and people are looking at you just for, what are you doing for us? (laughs) What are you doing for me today? Where's the numbers? What do you do? I think that's an amazing question in advocating on behalf of the listeners. There's a few things that you do in that situation. You get really aligned with your team and the leadership team of the company on the problems you are trying to solve in your customer experience. So you might say, hey, well, we actually don't have a demand generation funnel. We don't even know how we get leads for our sales team or to sign up for our product or what have you. Well, even though that's measurable, that's a core foundational thing. So you would go and do that, right? But if one of those problems, let's say, was, oh, People don't know the product we sell. Oh, great. Well, then we need to do product marketing and probably a a product level brand campaign and some things there. And the nuance here, Kieran, is that you can measure these things. It's just not directly correlated dollar for dollar of ROI like demand gen direct response marketing is. So you would set goals, you know, you can survey change in perception, awareness, consideration, all of those things. And you can have assumptions that a change in consideration will drive revenue at a certain rate. And you can see if over time that holds to be true. And so I think there's a way you can do those harder to measure things and still measure them and get a line to show how you're going to make progress. The issue here is that people are skeptics and they think the things that you can't really directly measure that you're not making progress on, that you're just doing a bunch of activities. And you have to get aligned with the company and the team around how we're going to show progress. That's not, we're doing these activities. It is, this is how we're making meaningful progress with our prospects and customers. Right. Yeah. It does not mean that you cannot show progress. It just means that you don't have it directly tied to revenue. But I think there's a ton of things you can do to show 
meaningful progress in a way that founders and C-suite will actually recognize and value. Okay. Before you give me my next topic for my hot take, I do want to give a user listener shout out. We got a, a new review on Apple Podcasts. If you love the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We will shout you out. This person didn't leave their name, so it's hard to shout about, but they did give a suggestion. So I want to make sure that you hear the suggestion here. And it says, Kelp me is a huge fan of episode 14. I love the marketing monopoly game. Well, thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. I thought that was I thought it was a great game. And they said, may I suggest the game of life? Hmm. What is that game? Is that a quiz show? What is it? I don't know what it is. I think it's a board game. Okay, cool. We can make it happen. The game of life is a board game. And I'm trying to figure out what the actual rules of the game of life are right now, live on the spot, because... Like a quiz thing, is it? No, it's like Sims before there was video games. It's like Mm. low-key, like Sims Animal Crossing kind of style, but in game format. And so it's all about spinning to take vacations and trips and build things in your life and get a job. So I will order it. I will hit up the Amazons, order it, and... Maybe we'll bring Hannah back from our Marketing Against Humanity episode. If you haven't listened to that, check that out. And we'll play the game of life. Awesome suggestion. I love it. Let's do that. Love that. Kieran, I gave you that. I gave you an extra minute to really stump me. So let's go. Okay. My hot take is the number one skill that marketers today do not know is important that is going to be everything in the future is editorial taste. (laughs) And so I think that we are moving into a world where we are going to see most content go live in a pop culture world, right? We've talked about this in terms of fintech. In 10 years ago, if you told me the funnest place to hang out would be fintech on Twitter, like I would have said, you're you're crazy, right? (laughs) Totally. No one's going to say that. I think we're seeing that in business. There's a lot of business people that I follow now that are very much a hybrid between like business and entertainment. And so there's this kind of thing called editorial taste that exists within media, does not exist within tech, that we don't mm-hmm. really understand or even understand how to value it or recruit it. Because the way that we create content is much more focused on the information that you are searching for, the things that you want that we can quantify by data. Editorial taste is much more around having a feel for how do I create something that people will truly engage with, whether that's on video, whether that's on newsletter, whether that's on podcast. And so when we bought The Hustle, it really hit me in terms of this thing that people from media are truly, really great at, this editorial taste thing, where they are able to like distill in, find a unique data point or a unique point of view and extract that and make it really interesting, make something much, much more interesting about it. And so it's always been to me, their ability to find something that no one else is covering and then cover it in a very differentiated and fun way, like actually bring some personality to that content. And personality and content is missing across nearly 99% of tech content. Oh, it's completely. And so I think in the future, marketing is going to, tech marketing is going to have to get really good at hiring people with great editorial taste. And that is going to be a hard skill to learn. And I think a lot of teams are going to hire a lot of people incorrectly as they try to figure that out. I think you're right. Summary for everybody listening is most brands want to be a taste maker. Mm. But they don't hire people who are tastemakers. Oh, I like, I love this. I love this. I love this. That is the actual problem here, right? Like very rarely do you talk to somebody who runs a business and they're like, hey, you know what I want to be? 
boring and lame. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, they're like, oh yeah, no, I would love to be like the cool brand of my market. I would love for people to think that we deeply understand them and know what's cool and all of those things. And if you believe that, you want that for your brand, you have to do exactly what you just said, Kieran. You have to then have people who have the ability to make taste and give them the freedom to do it. Mm, it's the freedom part that brands struggle with. It's the freedom yes. part. You have to value the upside from that taste making much more than the risk of the downside. Yes, yes. That is that is why most brands fail is because they get too worried about the risk of the downside versus the potential of the upside. If, if, if somebody asked us what we've done the last decade at HubSpot, it's really just that. Mm. We've thought more about the potential of the upside from the decisions than the risks of the downside. I love that. Yeah, I've seen some companies have told me, hey, like we, we really want to be a media brand. We really want to have like strong points of view and we really want to, as you said, be a tastemaker. And then I go look at their content and they say, you should check it out. And I go look at their content. And it's like, our next feature has just been launched. What do you think about this? <laughs> <laughs> no one cares. And so like you could say, well, okay, well, if I'm a tastemaker, I need to have some sort of connection to my brand. Yeah, you build your version of ad slots into your media, right? Yeah, of course. And it's contextual. It's better than doing on a third party. But no one wants to read about your latest feature across these channels. You're going to have to create things. Like you're not competing against other tech brands. You're competing against every other content creator that creates business content on the internet. I would reword, I would reword what you're just saying. You are competing against the 18-year-old TikTok star. Yeah. Right? It, that's That's what you're doing. Right. Attention is so fragmented that if you are only talking about really specific product features, then only a small percentage of your customer base will care. And that's it. And what you're making the point and advocation for is to lean much more into making taste, get further away from the product, understand that there's some risk, understand that you may take some stances or say some things that might not everybody might not agree with. But it's also almost impossible to make taste without giving everybody the freedom to do that and make some mistakes. Yeah, and, make, and to make it really tangible for our listeners to give a clear example, going back to the episode where you went through Eight Sleep, which I think was a really good example. It's really just making great content about performance and connecting that back to your product, that your product facilitates performance. But the way you create that content about performance has strong point of view, has entertainment value, has like unique data points, has like unique voices, is baked into like influential people and brands speaking about that on your behalf. Like that's where you craft that taste making content is in the brand component of that, is in the eight sleep talking about performance and own in the performance category. And then you can be much more functional when you want to talk about your product within the media that you create around performance. And I think that's how to think about it. I think companies try to struggle with how do I connect this taste, this internet pop culture content back to my product, but it's really just the part that sits above what your product facilitates. Mm -hmm. Like eight sleep is facilitates better performance. They want to own the performance category and their product sits beneath that in terms of we functionally use our product to help you get better sleep, which is improves your performance. Com completely agree. I don't think our hot takes were actually as controversial as I thought. I think we had some controversy there, but I think I've largely agreed with everything that you said. Yes. Did you, is there anything you disagreed with me on before we close it out? No, we need to think of even hotter takes, inferno takes. Next time, we'll do a segment where we intentionally try to say something the other person will disagree with. I think Elon Musk is going to be a bad CEO of Twitter. What about that? Is that a hot take? <laughs> I think you disagree with that. I, 
Yeah. I Well, I think he will be good in that because they need discipline. So I actually do disagree. He might not nail the business strategy, but he will nail like the organizational transformation. There you go. We had disagreed on something. I think he will be, I think Elon's a chaos maker and he'll strew more chaos into Twitter. We'll see. see. That'll that'll be good. Okay. Thank you so much for everybody listening to this episode of Marketing Against the Grain. Again, please leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. We would love to hear from you and shout you out on the show. 